Father God, as we come to your word today, we pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding, that, Holy Spirit, you would give us illumination to not only see, but to apply these things to our lives and to show us, Lord, the seriousness of sin, the serious nature of sin, in order that we would not be prone to grow comfortable with it, but that we would turn away from it and repent of it for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. So let's go ahead and start with Matthew chapter 7, because this is one of the most misunderstood passages that you can possibly find in Scripture. Judge not that you be not judged. Now that sounds a lot like tolerance according to our culture, doesn't it? It sounds like exactly what the culture wants, that we are all to tolerate each other, and that if somebody's in sin, well, that's, that's what they're doing, but you just worry about yourself because we're going to be tolerant with one another. There are all kinds of cultural slogans that feed into this, and I've actually received emails from people saying, how can you condemn sin when Jesus says, judge not, lest ye be judged? Good question. Has anybody ever struggled with that? I, I know that I used to once upon a time, but the, the, the key here is if you just take this first part, if you just take verse 1, man, that sounds like he's saying, don't judge. Don't judge anybody. Don't judge sin. Don't, don't do anything. But then, look what happens when you get to verse 5. Everybody got their Bible open to this? Look in verse 5. What eventually happens? He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what happens at the end of this little parable, this little picture story he's telling? Ah, he does go to his brother who has the speck in his eye or the splinter in his eye after he takes the log out of his own eye. And this prompts the question, how do you respond when you see sin in the life of another person? We recognize that it's a tricky situation because we all recognize that we have our faults too. We have our flaws too. We sin too. So who are we to condemn somebody else? Some will refer to what Jesus said here when they're confronted with seeing the sin in somebody else's life. But Jesus wasn't telling us not to judge. He was instructing us how to judge. And He was teaching us to judge in a way that isn't hypocritical. Because when you get to the end of the teaching, he does end up helping his brother with the speck in his eye. To adopt the idea from this that we're not to judge is to take the position that it is morally wrong to believe that something is morally wrong. It's wrong to believe that something is wrong. Now, does anybody see a problem with believing that it's wrong to think that something is wrong? Of course you do, because it's illogical. We're, we're, we're supposed to make moral judgments. That's what obedience to Christ is all about. It's about making right moral judgments and trusting in Christ, of course. But obeying means understanding that there are moral judgments to be made. It is logically impossible to say that it's morally wrong to believe that something is morally wrong. So maybe the better question is this. How do you respond when you see a speck or a splinter in the eye of another person. It's always humbling for me. It's always sad for me when I see a Christian, or especially perhaps a Christian leader, fall into sin. Earlier this year, the pastor of the largest church in South Carolina was removed from his position due to moral failure. And he wasn't the first. And he won't be the last. And that humbles me. I, I wasn't necessarily a fan of this guy. His, his approach to ministry is less than biblical. But anytime I see a Christian or a Christian leader fall into sin, it's humbling because as a pastor, I, I have to live with this constant awareness that I am one bad decision away from doing the same thing. I am always one bad decision from being in that person's shoes. So I'd better walk humbly. 
The truth is, when you see sin in the life of a brother or sister in Christ, it's important to be humble and to examine ourselves. Our flesh instinct is to say, that would never happen to me. That ain't going to happen to me. I'm not going to do what this person did. And that's foolish. Walk humbly before the Lord, especially when it comes to sin, whether that is your own sin or it is the sin of your neighbor. Because the truth is that it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. You could be a Christian for five minutes or five years or 50 years or 80 years. You are always on this side of glory. You are always going to struggle with sin. Every single one of us will have a struggle against the temptation to sin on this side of heaven. You will never become immune. You will never become impervious in this life to the inclination to sin. Even the most mature Christian faces this daily struggle. Let's look at exhibit A today. Noah. Noah is exhibit A. Noah, in his day and age, he was the most righteous person on the face of the earth. And as we've gone through the past three chapters in Genesis, we've seen that Noah was a guy who was really, really faithful to God. He had a great faith in God. He was obedient to God. But Noah was no Savior. No Savior. He, he was far from perfect. He struggled with sin. He needed a substitute before God just as bad as anybody else. And today we're going to take a look at one episode of a great moral failure in his life. Our lesson today comes from Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 to 29, and it's titled, From Rainbows to Wretchedness. And we're going to see at least two things in our passage today. We'll see that delighting in our own sin is an expression of self-hatred. And we'll also see that delighting in the sin of others is an expression of hatred both for yourself and for your neighbor. And as we begin our study today, we should remember that Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives, they've all been delivered from this worldwide catastrophic flood. And that upon exiting the ark, Noah built an altar and made burnt offerings to the Lord. And God found the aroma of Noah's faith pleasing. Shortly thereafter, God established His covenant with Noah, instructing Noah and his family to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, instructing them to respect all life, even animals, but especially human life, seeing all human life as sacred. And we saw that God promised to never again flood the earth. The sign of the covenant was the rainbow. Covenants always have signs, and the sign of the covenant he made with Noah is the rainbow. And you have to think, man, as, as Noah was looking at that rainbow, that, that had to be the most beautiful rainbow of all time, I would imagine anyway. The flood destroyed the unrepentant and the wicked, but we have to be aware of the fact that while it destroyed the wicked, it didn't destroy wickedness. Wickedness, sin, evil, corruption, it all persisted. It all continued to exist even after the flood. Our passage starts with verse 18. Let's look at verses 18 and 19 together. It says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And so what we see right off the bat here is that the four people that are listed here in verse 18, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, they're the only characters that we're going to encounter in our passage today. And that might, that should seem a little bit suspicious to you. Maybe it, it shouldn't be too surprising that God takes no action in this passage. And that God is, is practically absent in this passage other than being mentioned toward the end uh, as, as the dust kind of starts to settle when all's said and done. And when God is absent, what would you expect? What would you expect other than sin? What would you expect other than moral failure? That's all too often the way it works. 
Imagine for a moment that you are among these Israelites who have been wandering with the Israelites in the wilderness for for many, many years. You saw God miraculously deliver you and your people from slavery to the Egyptians, and you know that He's promised to bring you into the promised land. Maybe you've even heard rumors about the people who are currently dwelling in the promised land. And you're wondering, who, who are these guys? Where did they come from? And here lies the contemporary relevance to the original audience uh, to whom this was addressed. We know that the people of the land are none other than the infamous Canaanites. Where did they come from? Here's your answer. This passage gives us the answer. What we learn in this, in these two brief verses, is that the earth was not populated by people who evolved in in different parts of the world, completely separate from one another. No, every human being in the world can ultimately trace their ancestry back to the same starting point Noah. Noah and his three sons. So, regardless of your ethnicity, Regardless of your racial heritage, what we see here is that we are all part of Noah's family. We are all descendants of Noah. And this is one of the primary reasons, by the way, that racism is such an awful thing. That racism is, is not just inherently sinful, but that it's completely irrational and it defies, it defies reason and it defies God's plans and purposes and design for humanity. There is nobody who is inherently better, inherently more valuable, or inherently superior to anyone else just because of the color of somebody else's skin. Because we all come from the same line. We're all actually a family. Really, there really is only one race. There is only the human race. We're all one big family. And while human institutions make all kinds of distinctions and you know, draw differences between people based on race or based on social class or whatever, one of the beautiful things about the gospel is that it breaks down every boundary. It breaks down and eliminates every distinction. It levels the playing field, so to speak. God saves the wealthy. God saves the poor. God saves the free. God saves the slave. God saves the Jew. God saves the Gentile. Paul says in Galatians 3, verses 26-28, he says, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Talking to believers here, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And by the way, this is one of the things that I I love so much about our church. If you look around, what you'll see is that uh, represented here, we have Germany, we have China, we have Japan, we have Holland, we have UK, we have America, we, we have all kinds of ethnic heritage here. And that's the way the gospel is supposed to make it. That's the way a church is supposed to look. You're not supposed to just gather with people who look just like yourself. No, the gospel breaks down all of those distinctions. It eliminates all of those distinctions. This is the way it should be. And while we're brothers and sisters in Christ, of course, we're also distant cousins and distant relatives through blood. So how do you react how do you react when you see the splinter, see a splinter in the eye of a family member? Family is still viewed as important in our culture, but it isn't valued the same way that family was valued in the ancient world. We have placed a, a high value in our culture on things like independence and autonomy, and we've lost that sense of family connectedness to some extent in our culture, sadly. Keep that in mind as we continue. Let's look at uh, verses 20 to 22. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. 
And here we find Noah's moral failure. While Noah and his family were delivered from God's wrath, from from the flood around the whole earth, uh, we immediately see that sin was not extinguished. Sin was not extinguished. Sin persisted. It continued to reside on the earth even after the flood. The only way for God to rid the world of sin would be to rid the world of humanity. You can blame your sin on your environment. You can blame your sin on your upbringing. You can blame your sin on whatever situation you're in, where you sin, whatever. Ultimately, ultimately those are just excuses. They may exacerbate your sin. They may prompt your sin, but they don't cause your sin. They don't cause your sin. Sin is rooted in the heart of every son and daughter of Adam. And just like you and me, Noah is a son of Adam. Sometime after the flood, probably many, many years later, Noah became a farmer and he planted a vineyard. And what do you get from a vineyard? You get grapes. You get raisins. You get wine. Uh, Unless you're a Southern Baptist, in which case you get grape juice. Just kidding. I I love our Southern Baptist brothers and sisters in Christ. These things are all good and and they're all beneficial. And to this day, there's still important elements in the Eastern and Mediterranean uh, diet, uh, even to this day. However, what makes something good? What makes anything at all good? We saw this back in Genesis chapter 1. The thing that makes something good is using it in the context that God designed it to be used in for the purpose that God designated for it. To be used in the context that God designed it in accordance with the purpose for which God designed it. So if you, if you consider that, it means that everything is good when it's used in the way that God designed it and for the purpose God designed it. And even then, it's only good in moderation. Without moderation, anything can be unhealthy. Can you have too much air? Yeah, that's what hyperventilating is. That's not good. Uh, Can you have too much water? Yeah, even water. Even too much water can be unhealthy. You may remember, it was about 10 years ago, when the Nintendo uh, Wii came out, and they were very, very hard to come by, very difficult to get your hands on one. And so this radio station decided that they would have a contest, and uh, it involved drinking a lot of water. And the new Nintendo was the prize. And well, one woman who had entered the contest drank so much water that she diluted her blood and she died. Everything is good when it's used as God designed it to be used for the purpose God designed it for. Which means using it both in the context they were created it for and using it in moderation. Moderation. And that includes water. And it certainly includes wine as well. Noah's story is the first mention of wine in the entire Bible. This is the first time wine is even mentioned. But it would be a bit of a stretch to assume that nobody had discovered wine until this point. That nobody had taught Noah the process of making wine. At the very least, that would be an argument from silence. But Noah seemed to know the process. You grow the grapes, you pick the grapes. You crush the grapes in a wine press. You put the juice into skins and you wait for the fermentation process. And once upon a time, particularly about 100 years ago, early in the 1900s, a lot of, a lot of people tried to get Noah off the hook here by arguing that his drunkenness was accidental, that he didn't know that the juice would have fermented after a year or, or however long he let it sit. And so as far as he knew, he was just drinking really old grape juice. What a, what a ridiculous argument, honestly. Anyone who has ever tasted wine knows that wine may slightly resemble the taste of grape juice, but there is certainly a difference in taste. I, I don't have a sense of smell, and I know that those two things don't really taste the same at all. So the argument that Noah became drunk accidentally is pretty weak. I believe it's pretty clear here 
that no one knew exactly what he was doing, that this was very intentional on his part. Noah, the most righteous man in the world in his day, gave in to temptation to sin. Noah experiences moral failure. And I want to warn you not to see this as just a small thing. It might seem that way to us in our culture because we so easily become calloused to the serious nature of sin. But this is a reminder that our own goodness doesn't make us righteous. Noah wasn't perfect. Noah made mistakes. Noah sinned. Noah was a righteous man because of his faith. Because of his faith. Even though his faith failed him from time to time, as is the case here. Like us, any righteousness that Noah had was alien. In other words, it wasn't inherent. It wasn't within himself. It was alien, meaning it had to come from outside of himself. Like us, Noah's righteousness was the righteousness of Christ, which had been imputed to him. Keep in mind that according to Ezekiel chapter 14, if anyone was ever close to being righteous, to having an inherent righteousness on their own within themselves, it was Daniel, Job, and Noah. And yet, here we go. We're reminded that even the most faithful, even the most inherently righteous, if you can say that, Even the most godly sons of Adam struggle with sin and occasionally give in to the temptation to sin. Now let's be really clear about something. Noah's sin was not drinking wine. It was drinking too much wine. There's a difference between drinking wine and drinking too much wine to the point where he lost all self-control. But in and of itself, drinking wine isn't necessarily sinful. It becomes sinful when it controls you. The Bible doesn't condemn drinking wine in moderation. It condemns drinking wine or strong drink in excess. What the Bible condemns is drunkenness. Drunkenness is sinful. Paul instructs us in Ephesians 5.18. He says, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so what we see here is that being drunk is incompatible with the Christian life. Being drunk is incompatible with being controlled by the Spirit. The point here is that drunkenness prevents you from being filled with the Spirit. Let's clarify though. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, it doesn't mean to be drunk with the Spirit. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit makes you act like you're drunk. The fruit of the Spirit includes self-control. Self-control. That's a fruit of the Spirit. Apparently, somebody forgot to tell some of the charismaniacs out there who think that being drunk in the Spirit and losing all self-control is somehow a, a sign of godliness and virtue. So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be filled with anything? To be filled with anything in biblical terminology is to be directed by or yielded to whatever that is. So simply stated, you cannot be controlled by or you cannot yield to the Holy Spirit when you have chosen to be controlled by something else. And that's what makes drunkenness sinful. So how serious is it? How how serious is Noah's sin? He's he's drunk. He's really drunk. Well, it's, it's sin. And all sin is serious because all sin separates us from God. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.10 that drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, let's ask, what's a drunkard then? We better know what a drunkard is. What's a drunkard? It's an unrepentant alcoholic. So Paul isn't saying that somebody like Noah, who got drunk at least once, he's not saying that somebody like Noah won't inherit the kingdom of God. Noah wasn't an alcoholic for what we know, first of all. And secondly, God's grace will cover Noah's sin. Just like God's grace will cover every sin of anyone and everyone who will repent and believe in Christ. In Noah's case, he believed in the promises of a coming Messiah. God's grace covers it. God's grace is enough to cover any and every sin. 
Speaking of a cover, by the way, Noah doesn't have one. Noah needs one. As Noah lay drunk and naked and uncovered in his tent, apparently his son Ham walked into his tent and saw it all. He saw it all. Sin, what we're going to see here, sin is not only active in Noah's heart, it's also active in the hearts of his sons. And you might look at this and think, well, what's the big deal about what Ham did? That's how calloused, that's how insensitive we have become in our culture to sin, both in ourselves and in others. You see, Ham's sin isn't the fact that he accidentally, we'll just assume accidentally, walked in on his drunk, naked, uncovered father. His sin is seen in his reaction to Noah's sin. What does he do in response to Noah's sin? What does he do in response to seeing his father in sin? He leaves his father in his sin, uncovered. He goes outside. He finds his brothers and he tells them all about it. And, and we still might think, well, what's so wrong with that? Well, a couple things. First of all, there's at least an outside possibility. There's at least an outside chance that Ham actually sexually assaulted his father here. When the words uncovered and nakedness are used together in Scripture, it does often indicate that sexual relations have taken place. So there is a chance that that happened here and that they're not telling us explicitly because they want to protect, the author wants to protect our minds. So th- this, is, this is certainly disturbing to think that, that that may have happened. But I don't know if I'd say that it's entirely surprising given that most sexual assaults among adults involves alcohol. Less speculative than that, however, is the fact that the Hebrew here, if you translate it literally, would read that Ham told with delight or gladly announced or joyfully proclaimed what he had seen. He was giddy over his father's sin. It is wrong, it is morally wrong to delight in your own sin. Make no mistake about it. We need to be way, way more aware and concerned about our own sin than we are the sin of others. And we must not delight in anyone's sin. Not our sin, not the sin of anybody else. We all struggle with sin. That's obvious. We we all struggle with it every single day. We all give in to the temptation to, to sin from time to time. But... How do you respond to sin? How does it make you feel? Does it make you giddy? Does it give you joy? Does it give you delight? Whether we're talking about sin in yourself or sin in others. We all sin. Make no mistake about it. But to delight in it is actually to desire to be enslaved to it. Think about it. To delight in sin is to want more and more of it. And sin is what separates us from God. So really, what you're desiring is a greater separation from God if you are delighting in your own sin. So to desire to be enslaved to sin is actually to hate yourself. It's an expression of hatred toward yourself. Because sin separates you from God and warrants God's wrath to be unleashed upon you. So don't delight in sin. Repent of it. Delight in the Lord. Delight in the Lord and and in His ways. And while it's dangerous and sinful to to delight in sin, it's sin in your life, it's even worse to delight in the sin of others. Think about this for a second. When you delight in or when you endorse or when you encourage or applaud the sin of another person, you're not only expressing hatred toward that person, by essentially wishing for God's wrath upon them, but you're sinning by finding a sense of joy or delight in sin, in that person's separation from God. Can you imagine the hatred you would have to have in your heart to enjoy seeing a splinter in somebody else's eye? 
How much do you have to hate somebody to find joy in somebody else having a splendor in their eye? Remember, delighting in our own sin is an expression of self-hatred. And delighting in the sin of others is an, express, is an expression of hatred both for yourself and for them. Proverbs 24, verses 17 to 18 says this, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased with you and will turn his anger away from them. This is talking about rejoicing when you see sin in your enemy. Your enemy. If God warns us against rejoicing in the sin of our enemy, how much more dangerous is it to rejoice over the sin of somebody who isn't your enemy? And Solomon, the author of Proverbs, the one who put Proverbs together, he wants us to understand that when we rejoice in the sin of others, we're actually kindling God's anger against us. We're turning His anger toward us for rejoicing in and maybe even encouraging the sin in another. The greatest commandment, according to Jesus, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. The second greatest commandment, according to Jesus, is that we love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. And yet we have to understand that when Jesus is talking about love, He was talking about something that is very, very different from our culture's understanding of what love is. It's great to say that you are all about love. Praise the Lord. If you're all about love, praise the Lord. But you better understand what it means. You better understand what the Bible means when it talks about love. And of course, we can see this in in various passages throughout Scripture, the way it's played out. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We see love as, as one of the, the highest virtues, in, uh, not only in our culture, but, but in the Bible. But what is love? And that's a good question. We, we need a definition for love if we're going to be all about love, right? So, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 6, love does not do a lot of things. One of the cultural slogans we have is that love is limitless, right? Just let people love whatever that means to them. But no, let's see see this. Love does not do a lot of things. First of all, it says in verse 4, love does not envy. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. So immediately here, what we're seeing is that love is not a free-for-all. It's not an open definition where you're just free to define it however you want. You want you're not free to say that you know love is is limitless. No, love does have limits. Love does not do certain things. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. Love is not resentful. Look at verse six with me. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but note the contrast, it rejoices with the truth. So let's be clear about this. The biblical definition of love excludes a lot of things, including taking delight in wrongdoing, in sin. If somebody encourages you to sin, let me be very clear about this, if somebody encourages you to sin or enables you to sin, they do not love you, they hate you. They hate you. And if you think about this scene, this is really like the first instance of pornography. He's he's beholding and finding joy in seeing somebody naked. So this is, I mean, that's what pornography is, right? I mean, why do people watch it? Because they delight in it. They delight in somebody else's sin. They delight in somebody else's shame but delighting in the sexual sin of others, friends, is an expression of hatred for your neighbor. By doing so, you're supporting not only adultery, but sexual immorality, sexual abuse, human slave trafficking, all kinds of things, all all kinds of other sins. 
It's hateful to yourself and it's hateful to others to delight in the sin of your neighbor. And who's your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Yeah, the lawyer asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? And Jesus told the parable of the, great, uh, of the Good Samaritan, which taught us that our neighbor is everybody. Everybody is your neighbor, including your enemies. And this is why, friends, this is why Christians cannot join movements like the LGBT movement. To do so is to delight in, endorse, and, and applaud and encourage the sin of your neighbor. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love does not find delight in seeing a piece of wood of any size in the eye of your neighbor. And the same goes for endorsing any sin, any and every sin. Biblically speaking, to endorse or encourage or applaud or celebrate sin is an expression of hatred, biblically speaking. Do you see how, how different the culture's view of love is from the biblical definition of love? They are diametrically opposite, which tells us what? The culture's definition of love is actually satanic. It's wicked, it's so twisted. When you endorse or encourage your neighbor to sin, you're encouraging their separation from God. And you're encouraging them to invite God's wrath upon themselves. And that is anything but loving. Real, biblical, Christian love rejoices not in wrongdoing, but in truth, in righteousness, and repentance. Proverbs 2.14 warns of those who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, whether that's for themselves or for anyone else. In other words, it's warning about people who are cheerleaders on the road to hell. Getting back to our text, what should Ham have done? What, was, what would have been the right response for Ham here? For starters, he should never have gone to his brothers with the attitude that would say, hey guys, you, you want to see something really hilarious? His attitude toward his father's sin reveals at least two things about him. Number one, he delighted in sin. Number two, he hated his own father. We can throw in a third thing. He hated himself. He's delighting in sin. What's your attitude? Toward sin. Whether it's your own sin or the sin of others, what is your attitude towards sin? Do you claim to love your neighbor and yet encourage or endorse or enable or applaud or celebrate their sin? If you do, you don't love them. Let's just be forthright about it. If you're cool with your neighbor sinning, if you're cool with your neighbor being separated from God, you don't love them. You hate them. Delighting in our own sin is an expression of self-hatred, and delighting in the sin of others is an expression of hatred for both yourself and for them. So delight in the Lord. Delight in obedience to Him. Delight in His ways. And love your neighbor enough to refuse to endorse or encourage or applaud or enable their sin. Those people are the mission field. Those people are the mission field. Let's continue. Verse 23 actually gives us a pretty good idea of what Ham should have done. Verse 23. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So what we see here is that rather than mocking or enjoying or applauding or getting giddy about or delighting in the sin of their father in his drunkenness and his nakedness and his state of being uncovered, Shem and Japheth cover their father's nakedness. And they're careful to do it in a way that honors him and that shows that they are not taking any delight in seeing him drunk and naked and uncovered. They don't take any delight in his sin. Their approach is humble. Their approach is, is respectful. Remember, he's, he's got the image of God. 
Noah has the image of God, and they're being respectful toward that. As Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Whether they knew it or not, Shem and Japheth, in their actions, are actually imitating God. They're actually being godlike in their response. They're, they're imitating God. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned and uh, God's casting them out of the Garden of Eden, and what does He do? He covers them. He covers them. Shem and Japheth are doing the exact same thing here. They love their father, and so they're covering his sin. Love seeks to cover all offenses. It doesn't endorse sin. Love desires what is best for our neighbor, best in God's eyes for another person. And so love doesn't mock or encourage or endorse or applaud or celebrate sin. Instead, love seeks to see sin covered. Do you seek to see the sin of your neighbor covered? Do you seek to see the sin of your neighbor covered? If you do, and and I hope that you do, I pray that you do, be careful to walk humbly before the Lord. Being careful not to practice the same sin that you're about to try to cover, try, try try to share the gospel with them because of it. Being careful not to encourage or endorse sin, whether it's in yourself or in others. How you respond to sin in your own life speaks volumes about who you are and where you're headed, eternally speaking. Christians may find delight in sin for a season. I get it. It's, it's part of the flesh. It's something that we, that we continue to struggle with. That, that sin, oh, it, it just, it, it's something that appeals to us. So there, there's something that, in it that we may delight in for a season. But if your desire, if your, if your inclination toward it never changes, if your desires, if your delights, if your appetites don't change, listen, you have every right. If, if your desires are leading you towards sin and they never change, you have every right to question your standing before God. In fact, you should, and it would be foolish not to. How you respond to sin in your own life speaks volumes about who you are, about your character. And so does how you respond to the sin of your neighbor. As Psalm 32.1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Let's wrap up our study of chapter 9 looking at verses 24 to 29. When Noah... when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So the next day, apparently, Noah wakes up from his wine. In our language, we would say he sobered up from his wine, found out what happened. And here he speaks the only words that we have in Scripture that were spoken by him. Isn't that kind of weird? We've, we've been looking at him for three chapters but he's just been a picture of obedience. He's been a picture of obedience. These are the only words he speaks in all of Scripture. And he gives a a prophetic proclamation of blessings and curses. Now you might think it's odd that Noah curses Ham's son Canaan rather than cursing Ham himself. But there are two possibilities here. Number one, it's possible that God gave him a prophetic vision. It's possible that God told him, you know, this is the road that Canaan's going to go down, and so, you know, this is what you are to say. Secondly, uh, it's possible that Noah just knew. He just knew that the apple hadn't fallen far from the tree, so to speak. He had seen that Canaan exhibited a lot of the evil, perverse, 
twisted values that his father had. And of course, we should understand that curses like these are powerless. You you can't just speak a curse and it have any power over anybody unless God himself fulfills that curse, which in this case he did. Canaan would give rise to the Canaanites, and they would be God's enemies, they would be Israel's enemies, they would be perverse, they would be completely depraved, they would be completely godless. As one commentator notes of the Canaanites, he says, quote, Leviticus 18 describes the degenerate practices of the Canaanites with a litany of euphemisms so as not to offend the reader, employing the words nakedness, uh, employing the word nakedness 24 times. End quote. So the Canaanites were a twisted, depraved, godless people. But Noah also prophesied incredible blessings in the future for Shem. Notice, however, that Noah doesn't praise or bless Shem. Instead, whom does he bless? He blesses and praises the Lord, the God of Shem. Israel would come from Shem's line. More important, more significant than that, however, is that the Messiah, the promised one, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, would come through Shem's line. Through Jesus, the Messiah, the descendants of both Japheth and Ham would be included in the true seed of Abraham by grace through faith in Christ. The gospel takes away all distinctions. Japhethites, Shemites, and Hamites are all capable of being saved by God. The gospel has no racial or social boundaries. Galatians 3.14 says, So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The Messiah would make kind of a family reunion. He'd bring those three lines back together as one again. Jesus lived and died in order to meet our greatest need. He saw our sin How did he react to it? He loved us so greatly that he did something about it. He loved us so greatly that he covered our sin with his own blood, redeeming a people for himself who would live as imitators of God, as a light in the darkness. Now we're all prone to sin and prone to wander, but we're instructed to abide in Christ. We're instructed to abide in Christ, to obey the Lord, and to delight in His will and in the blessings that we have through Christ Jesus. To be in Christ, to be in Christ is to be freed from the obligation to sin. Without Christ, you can't help it. In Christ, whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. Not free to sin, you're free from sin. If you're in Him, you are able to resist the temptation to sin. You are able to resist the temptation to sin. But it starts with having the right attitude towards sin. This is a reminder, friends. This is a reminder to walk humbly before the Lord. To to be aware of our own sin and, and to purge it from our lives. To repent of it when we see it in our lives, to confess to be, and, and receive Christ's forgiveness. It's a reminder to delight in the Lord and in His ways. It's a reminder to wage war against sin in our own lives and to love, and to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and our neighbors enough to be heartbroken when we see sin in their lives seeking to see their sin covered by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess to You that our hearts and our minds are so calloused towards sin that we don't fully understand how serious even the smallest sin is. 
We confess to you, Lord, that we ourselves, apart from your grace, would do nothing but sin. But we thank you that in Christ we are free from that obligation. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ we don't have to sin. We thank you, Lord, that through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit and your word, we can repent and turn from our sin. Teach us, Lord, not to love our sin. Teach us, Lord, not to find any delight in sin. Oh, Lord, teach us to love righteousness, to love holiness, to love your law, to love obedience to you, and to hate all unrighteousness, to hate anything that would drive a wedge between the two of us, between us and you. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for sending your Son, Father, to bear our sin upon himself and to take the wrath that we deserve upon himself. Thank you that he clothes us in his own righteousness that we may stand before you. But God, while we have the righteousness of Christ, teach us, Lord, teach us to walk in his ways, to have righteousness in our own lives for all to see. Give us strength, give us wisdom, give us conviction, and give us grace, Lord. Whether that's in dealing with our own sin or confronting and addressing the sin that we see in others in order that you would be glorified for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.